Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. And this morning we come to our final study together. And our subject has been the, the person and work of Christ as he exercised his ministry as Redeemer. And the platform has been those words from the Catechism that Christ, our Redeemer, executes the office of a prophet, of a priest, of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And so to paraphrase uh, the words of John Flavel, that English Puritan, as prophet Christ announced the will of God, as priest Christ accomplished the will of God, and as king Christ applies the will of God. Now Christ's identity as king is shown throughout Scripture. He has a kingly title. The prophet Isaiah declared that he is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. And then in the book of the Revelation, he is described as, and has already been mentioned today, he is the king of all the kings, and he is Lord of all lords. And he is one who has royal insignias. He bears a crown. He has a sword. The 40th, 45th Psalm declares, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. He has a scepter. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so that text confirms that he is a king who has unlimited authority. The words of Proverbs, chapter 15, By me, says the king of kings and lord of lords, by me kings reign, and by me princes live. That is, all other rulers and authorities hold their position by the immediate tenure of this great king. He is the one who sets them up. He is the one who puts them down. And so the psalmist declared, whatever the Lord pleases, that he does in earth and heaven, in the seas, and the deep. He has a royal title. He is royal insignia. And he has that place of authority and royalty with heaven's blessing. For it is the Father who has decreed him to be king. The words of that second psalm, I have set my king upon 
my holy hill. I will declare the decree. And so it was that the Apostle John wrote, Him hath God the Father sealed. So given that, that range of royalty that we find in Scripture, the question arises, what is the relationship between Christ as King and Christ as Redeemer? How is it that redemption is bound up not only as prophet and priest, but as king? The first point I would draw your attention to this morning then is this, the necessity of Christ's kingship for his subjects. It's clear from the truth of Scripture and from the testimony of our own hearts that if it were not for Christ's office as king, we would not be his subjects. For the word of the king is this, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. On Friday night, we were reading Genesis chapter 3, and Paul's comment on that text, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way death came to all men because all sinned. All sinned. Romans 5.12. So what were the consequences of that action? Well, surely this. Sin is universal. Sin is universal. All have sinned. We are all sinners due to our posterity. That is, we all trace our lineage back to Adam. It is also due to our position because Adam acted in a federal capacity, that is, he was our representative, and so his sin is imputed to us. And we've all sinned because it is our daily practice. We freely sin against God by both sins of omission and commission. Sin is universal. And it has not only marked us, it has marred us. Our hearts. What does John record? We love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. Our heart has been infected by sin. And our minds, Paul in Romans 8, 
Our minds are hostile to God. And we do not submit to God's law. And our wills? Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Sin has polluted our hearts and poisoned our minds and captivated our wills. So that sin, that which men and women desire and delight in and do, has rendered us unfit to do anything that will gain us acceptance with God. For everything we turn our hands to, we pollute. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. There is none that fear God. We're unfit because how can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit? And then deeper than that, we have an unwillingness to accept and submit to the things of God. For the carnal mind is at enmity against God, argues Paul, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And more than that, man is unable to do that which is good with respect to God. For though he may be civilized, educated, refined, and even religious, his heart, which is the, the spring of all affection and volition, is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah the prophet declares. And so again, Paul in Romans 8, 8, they that are in the flesh, that is in our natural, our natural condition, we cannot please God. This is what sin has done. Is it not Isaiah the prophet who paints that picture that we are, we are sick and stained by sin from the top of our heads to the very sole of our feet. We're not neutral towards God. We are at war with God. We live a life of rebellion against God. We are the children of disobedience. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We are ungodly and therefore unrighteous. And within each one of us, and my dear friends, I'm not simply speaking here about the unbeliever. I'm including all of us here in this room this morning. There is within each of us a, a capacity to engage in every form of sin. Our, our hearts contain the, that poison and the passion, given the right circumstances, 
to do the unthinkable. The seed of every known sin lurks in our hearts. The possibility, the propensity to sin, as I say, given the right circumstances and conditions, can lead to such terrible disasters. So given the universality of sin, and given the ugliness of sin within the human frame, how, how can a leopard change its spots? How can a Christ-denying, sin-engaging, God-rejecting, hell-deserving person be saved, transformed, made anew. There's only one way. Christ the King needs to fight His way into our souls. And that's exactly what he does. He sends his army of prophets and apostles and evangelists who under the authority and ability of his spirit attack the citadel of our mind and heart and will with that two-edged sword. So that the psalmist in Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Your people will offer them themselves freely on the day you lead your forces, on the day you come with your power. You see, we just don't come to Christ when we think we're ready for it, or we're, well, we're enjoying ourselves now, but maybe later. The decision is not yours, my friend. The time is not yours, my friend. The will is not yours, my friend. Without King Jesus, you will say, no, tomorrow. Maybe next week. My dear friends, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I told you Friday night about that incident in San Remo. Maybe this will frighten you to come to camps if I'm at it. But let me tell you another. I was talking at the breakfast table. It came to my mind. Some years ago, I think uh, some, some young ones in the room here might remember, or they're not so young anymore. But uh, for, for some years, I would speak at a youth camp in Timboon down in the Western District. A number of churches in Melbourne and a couple from Adelaide with young people would get together for, for a camp such as this. I think it was a Monday, finishing up, packing up, saying our goodbyes, a lot of laughter, shaking of hands, waving, people driving home. One carload of boys headed off to Melbourne. Uh, I packed up and got home, and I wasn't home long when the phone went. This bunch of boys took the coastal road home, stopped to have a look at the Red Ocean, got too close to the waves, and one was washed out to sea. Some of you older folk in town may remember the name of Don Prout in DP, he used to write for New Life. It was one of DP's sons. 
been to the youth camp, hearing the things of God, going home from camp, a young person, thinking all the life ahead of him. Never got home. Never got home. Today is the day of salvation. God speaks through his word. For it is by the power of the king's spirit that there comes conviction to the conscience. There comes light to the mind. There comes renewal to the heart. There comes freedom to the will. So that the tower of our pride, the wall of our self-confidence, the bulwark of our ignorance, these things are destroyed and the gospel of the king causes the soul to seek an audience with the king of glory, seeking for his pardon, seeking for his mercy, seeking for his grace. How did Wesley put it? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My dear friends, without Christ as King, without His sovereign majesty and mercy, we would not be saved, redeemed, liberated from the bondage of sin and hell and death. And I wonder if you know these things this morning. I wonder if that's your story. How one day, one time, I'll always remember it, I was brought up in to go to church, good Presbyterian, north of Ireland, Sunday school. Came to Australia, taken to church, went to Sunday school. I'm sure I heard the gospel many, many a time, but uh, never registered until one night in a little church. I heard a preacher, and all of a sudden, the lights went on, and I realized I was a sinner. That was one of those churches where they gave an invitation, old-fashioned gospel service. An invitation was given to come forward. And I remember standing a pew in front of me, holding on to that pew. I was not going anywhere. And yet, the this sense of conviction that I needed, and I, wasn't, I was fighting. And I didn't go. But, you know, all that week, I knew what I had to do. My mother didn't have to invite me to go to church Sunday night. All I knew was I had to go there, and I had to go and speak to somebody. I can't even remember what the message was, but when the invitation was given, I was the first one to step out. I needed peace with God. I saw things, I understood things, I felt things in the sense of conviction that I'd never known before. God and his mercy and his grace, I think I was about 17 years of age, came and in his mercy saved my soul. There is the necessity of Christ as King to save us, to make us his own. But then let me take you further. Not only the necessity, but then think of the ministry of Christ's kingship over his subjects. In other words, how does Christ execute the office of a king 
over those he has redeemed. Well, let me give you a few points. The first surely is this, he rules us. He rules us. And how does he do that? He rules us by his word and by the whole of his word, not just those popular passages that you like to turn to. But the words of Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Or the words in 2 Timothy, all, all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and all of Scripture is, possible, is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so, uh, I don't know whether you've ever had any, anything to do with the navigators minister. I was involved with the navigators as a young, as a young, young Christian, and they had what they call the hand of the word. How do you get a, you know, a good, how do you get a good grip on the word of God? You need, you need your five fingers. And what does each finger represent? Well, one is you need to read the Bible. You need to study the Bible. You need to memorize the Bible. You needed to hear the Bible. You needed to meditate upon the Bible. And if you got those five things, then you've got a good grip upon the word of God. And it's through his word that he rules us. Reading it studying it, memorizing it, hearing it preached, meditating upon it. He rules us by his word. And then secondly, he rebukes us. He rebukes us. I'm thinking here of the words of Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You know, the, the Lord's ways with us at times are difficult and sometimes hard to experience. But our King's will is not our destruction, but our correction and perfection. You know, it's been lovely to, to, to hear not only publicly but privately, I hear about uh, people speaking about their, their Christian growth, uh, God, God growing them as, as a Christian. And it's delightful to hear, but can't help but think, how do we define Christian growth? What, is, what does Christian growth look like? Does it mean that, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm feeling more spiritual than I did this time last year? Uh, does it mean that, uh, well, I'm, I'm nicer to be around? You know, I don't kick the dog anymore. I'm, I'm not, I'm not qu no, no, quite polite to my neighbor. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more thoughtful. Well, if that's your case, God bless you. But what's the mark of true truth? Christian growth. How did Paul define his growth in Christ? Well, he wrote to the Corinthians and he said that he was the least of all the disciples. A little while later, he wrote Romans and he now described himself as Oh, wretched man. And then 
Before his death, he wrote again, and he called himself the chief of sinners. He saw his growth in the sense of becoming increasingly aware of the wretchedness of his own heart and mind and will. We sang a hymn of John Newton, Amazing Grace. He also wrote another hymn. I've quoted it before when I've been with you in Endeavour Hills. Forgive me for quoting it again, but it, to me, it's, there's nothing in contemporary music like it. Forgive me, young people. But this, this is, I think, the epitome of Christian growth. This is John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, and more of his salvation know, and more earnestly seek his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and I thought he'd answer prayer. And it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sin and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy, wound, thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find your all in me. My friends, Christian growth in one sense is not that we feel better each day, but in fact, we feel worse each day. We learn more of what we are really like, and it scares the daylights out of us. That's Christian growth. He rules us, he rebukes us, but in his grace, he also restrains us. Because, you see, our natural inclination is what? It's to backslide. Natural inclination of our hearts. It's to leave the God we love and to go off into the far country. But how great and gracious is our sovereign 
You remember the psalmist's testimony in Psalm 73. He'd looked out on, on his neighbors and his friends and his street, and they were wealthy, and they had their big homes, and their cars, and their boats, and their caravans, and they were, they were healthy, and they were well, and he was sick and frail and, and poor, and he's thinking to himself, why am I a Christian? Why is it that I'm in this state, and yet look at these ungodly people. They've got everything. They haven't got a care in the world. And he was looking and thinking, what's all this about having the abundant life as a Christian? Look at them. They've got the abundant life. I've got just pain and toil and heartache. And he said, I thought this until I went into the house of the Lord and I understood their end. That all the toys and the trinkets they had, they can't take with them. And he came to realize who he had in heaven, and that was God. He was restrained from backsliding, as it were, from going to the house of the Lord. And that's one of the reasons you've got to be at church on Sunday. Because it's there combined with each other. Because when you sing, you sing to the Lord, but there's also a time when you sing to one another. Some hymns are written to sing one to another, where you encourage one another to keep on steadfast, and where you hear the Word of God. It's when you go in where your thinking that's been corrupted during the week is sharpened and cleansed and dealt with in the house of the Lord where the Word of God is open. We need to be at church on Sunday to be ready for the next week's battle. The Lord restrains us as a gathered people. And fourthly, he rewards us. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it's impossible to please God, and whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And he rewards us, does he not? He rewards us with, with the fruit of the Spirit. I, I've painted a dim picture and a grim picture of the Christian life, and it is that at times, but my dear friends, there's also that side to it. The Spirit of God visits us and grants to us, even in the midst of great upheaval, he grants to us a peace, and he gives to us a joy, and he gives to us a love. Listen, listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, you think about Paul, you think about all that he endured, all the shipwreck, all the beatings, everything he went through, and yet he describes all his trials and troubles as momentary afflictions. Unbelievable, this man, Paul. Momentary afflictions is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what our King has prepared for those who love Him. An eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That is what awaits the King's subject when they enter the glory land. And they behold the Lamb in all His glory. An indescribable glory and wonder beyond measure. 
What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He saves us to reward us with himself forever and ever in glory. So how does Christ exercise the ministry of his kingship over his subjects? Number five, he remembers us. He remembers that we are dust. And so he prays for us. And he protects us. And he preserves us. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Because my dear, my dear friends, our king is no tyrant, but tender-hearted. And his desire is that we be with him to behold his glory and to experience that fullness of joy. And our great comfort amidst the darkness and the depravity and the disasters and the difficulties and the debauchery of this world is that our Redeemer is also Christ the King. And so God says to us, listen, 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 kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. So let me draw it all to a close, my final point, and that is the testimony of Christ's kingship by his subjects. What is the testimony of Christ's kingship by his subjects? What characterizes those who claim Christ as their king? What evidence can be produced to affirm their confession of faith? Well, let me just give you three, and I'm done. The first is this. His subjects stand on his promises. His subjects stand on his promises. That is, we walk by faith and not by sight. We've been brought by sovereign grace to believe in him, and so we continue to believe in him. With the Apostle Paul, we say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the point is, if we have absolute trust and confidence in this King, then we shall follow wherever he leads and obey everything he says and dare not refuse any demand that he makes. True subjects are devoted to his word, directed by his word, and dependent on his word. They're steadfast, unmovable, standing, not sitting on the premises, but standing on the promises. Standing on the promises of God. Walking by faith and not by sight. And secondly, 
His subjects submit to his providence. While the heavens may at times be at brass, and while the Lord himself may seem to be silent, the hiddenness of God, and while the wind and the waves around us would appear to be gaining strength, and the way ahead of us would seem to be dark and unknown, his subjects trust his wise bestowments and comfort their heart by the, the divine cordial of Romans 8, 28. The divine cordial, as the Puritans would call it, the privilege of, of knowing, of knowing, of being assured that all things work together for good to those that love God. My friends, we need to realize that everything does not depend upon us. You're not God, neither am I. Our God is in heaven. Trust Him to know what he's doing. We trust in an all-wise, sovereign God. And sometimes it's good to stop and to, to think and look and see what God has done for us in the past to find encouragement to trust him for the future. Just to see what God has done for our spiritual good and what he's doing for us. Michael Boland, writing in his introduction to a book called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel, said, If Christians showed at all times by their demeanor that they had a living faith in the God of Scripture, they would be better placed to commend to an unbelieving world their God and his power to save. What's he simply saying? People that you work with, and sorry for taking so long, but let me take an aside. It's the last chance I've got to speak to you for the day. Work is not the place to witness. Work is the place to work. Your employer doesn't employ you to spread the gospel, neither does God. We are to give, be able to give a reason for the hope that's within us and seek an opportunity if somebody asks us why we're not alarmed and upset and confused because of the state of the world, why they see us working away with the confidence and with the hope and with the calmness and with peace, and they come to us and want to know why. Speak with them by all means, but make an opportunity to speak to them. Don't use your employer's time to do it. That's cheating. But by our demeanor, we should be different from the world. It's a dreadful world out there. It's a far different world now than it was when I was growing up. But he's still king. He's still Lord. And he still grants his people peace to trust him even in the darkness. And so by a very demeanor we should give, be giving proof to the fact that our king is in heaven. He does as he pleases. And so finally... Third final point, we stand on his promises and we submit to his providence. And thirdly, his subjects sound forth his praises. They sound forth his praises. 
Psalm 96. Psalm 96. A great psalm. If you've got your Bible there, here it is. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Three times at the beginning we're told here to sing. And we're described to him honor and to glory. And we're to say to the nations, verse 10 it says, say to the nations what? The Lord reigns. All creation, my friends, rejoices and exalts in the Lord. Creation celebrates God and King. And what a marvelous message of worship it is, that surely that we who know His name, and know His salvation, and know His greatness and glory and strength and reign, we too should join in this hymn, of praise. For is not worship the fruit of his work, rejoicing in his wonders, recognizing something of the glory and splendor and relating his glory or relating his glory to the nations? It says in verse 11 in that psalm, let the sea roar and all that fills it. My friends, the sea roars with constant delight because it is constantly held by God and is constantly sustained by Him. Creation rejoices and gives praise to God and nothing magnifies our glorious King than His subjects being satisfied with him. Subjects who are persuaded that nothing, not money, not leisure, not position, not health, not sport, nor sex, or toys, or IT, or whatever, nothing is to bring satisfaction to their hungry hearts apart from God himself. That he is the one who fills my heart and satisfies my every longing. The sign, the indicator that he is our king, is our desire and delight to sound forth his praises. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And so our message, and our hope, and our comfort is simply this, my friends. The Lord reigns. He's reigning this very moment. Don't be overly concerned about China. Don't be overly concerned about Ukraine. He's still on the throne. He's our savior. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. And he not only rules the world, but he's interested in you. The very hairs of our head are numbered. Some of us give him an easier time than others. <laughs> but this great God and King knows his subjects, loves his subjects, watches us when we go out, watches us when we come back, knows your address, knows your name, 
this is our God and King. His subjects stand on his promises, submit to his providence, shine forth his praises. Christ is King. But is he your King, young people? Is he your King? Let's pray. Father, thank you you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture because there are things here that we would not even begin to believe. There are truths here, our Father, that are so great we wouldn't even begin to imagine. Wonderful words, mighty words, challenging words, comforting words. Words of the King who does not lie. Oh, Father, for each of us, you search our hearts this day. You know us. We're in this room, but not one of us is hidden from you. You know exactly, not only where we're sitting, but you know what condition we're in and who we're serving and we pray, dear Father, for each other. Strengthen us with might by your Spirit that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be a people who rejoice in our God, walk humbly before him, and delight in him who is our Prince, our Savior, our King, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all the Lord's people said, Amen.